coming up on Life is a Festival. I think what happens is like we shut the gates of these intentional communities and are like, this is the bubble we're going to be in and we're going to do this for the, the world, but we really just mean ourselves because it's just those that will have access to it. And so I think the invitation is to assess the place you are, realize that is it is not an uninhabited place and restore your relationships to like the beings of that place in a really holistic way. And the template for action is like, how do you care for those people? Like I already, I know the project plan for restoration of the world. If I look at the systems of the world, it's like we need to plant trees, we need to restore soil, we need to like regrow coral, we need to do all of these things. And so these communities we're building is just a fractal level of that thing. It's like, all right, great. I have a land surplus and I recognize that a lot of the people in my community are outside of this community, can't really afford energy. So I'm actually going to start an energy co-op to start providing these people energy. And so you build this logistical infrastructure of care that actually scaffolds the new world that we want. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Well, my fellow travelers, I have been doing a little bit less podcasting. I've been on my own deep journey. Aren't we all, aren't we always on some kind of transformative journey of self-discovery and accessing deeper gifts to share with the world? At least, I mean, I feel like I'm always in some version of that with varying levels of poignancy. But these past couple of weeks have been a bit of a doozy and I will, I will discuss what I've been going through in another podcast at another time. But for now, we're going to talk about power and privilege in intentional communities. And I have on the show a new friend, Ashoka Finley, who I met when I was at Wildwood in Topanga two months ago, um, a really brilliant complex systems thinker who has the perspective of pleasure activism when it comes to the, the kind of elitist privilege that often goes into building these special enclaves that that people can kind of hide in. If we want to build or join or imagine intentional communities, we need to do that in right relation to the world. We need to do that as part of the fractaling out of regenerative ecosystems. There's nothing wrong with trying to build that special place, but we have to have a relationship to the people who are already in that place into the broader context. And that's what Ashoka talks about today. And it's not a grim conversation. I'll tell you what, we really do get to an optimistic, beautiful place. But Ashoka has been thinking about these things for a long time. And from the enormity of grief that is inherent in the climate crisis to race relations, we talk about indigeneity and whiteness, to what it means to have privilege 
in the context of of crumbling infrastructure in our urban enclaves. There's there's a lot here, and I, I really feel like this conversation is foundational to the series I've been doing about intentional communities, um, and probably should have been the first one, but I hadn't met Ashoka yet. Anyway, Ashoka is an emergent strategist and a complex systems thinker. He is the former chief anarchy officer at Consensus, um, a leading Ethereum software company. And he is the current founder and CEO of Tolo, which is a membership-based content platform that uses a portion of funds to build effective social change strategies. So we need to compost the old world. And I know that we're all feeling a lot of powerlessness in the face of an upcoming election and just so much tension in the world. But we can do something about the world. Indeed, we must. And Ashoka is going to help us understand how to think about ourselves in relation to what needs to be done. So here's my friend Ashoka. Welcome to Life is a Festival. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. I was really inspired to kind of collect my thoughts uh, at this invitation because as you know in, in our meeting, like me on the whiteboard is kind of a crazy, like deranged place. And I often feel like the meme from Always Sunny in Philadelphia where he's like pointing at the board. The conspiracy to, theory yeah, meme. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that feels like my life a lot. So I'm excited to kind of have the conversation in a way that we can distill and get into some things that are really radical, but really simple and like adjacent to the reality we live in now and are just like a future we can step into. Yeah, and I think part of how we do that is through the tenderness of your own experience. Mm -hmm. Because it's no bit of luck or fortune that you have the knowledge that you have. Totally. And that there is longing in your being to make an impact in this way. 100%. Yeah, and so where I think I'd like to start is, do you recall a time in your life when you became aware of climate crisis and felt called to study and learn and and have some impact in that space. Do you recall a time in your life when that that when you had that when like an embodied feeling mm-hmm. that you were called? I think it was less about climate change specifically. My focus has always been power and I think that my understanding of climate change is a consequence of like centuries long asymmetric power and inequality. Um, and so how I came to my understanding of climate change was really through that study and investigation. And I have always been a person that, well, actually not always, since the, since the second grade, since I was seven, I remember, shouts out to Miss Rukuma, who was like the most authoritarian teacher ever, because she taught me that power can be really unaccountable in a way that I didn't really understand in my relationship to my parents. And so... That investigation of power, like being in accountability or delegitimate power, really caused me to probe and constantly pick and scratch this itch. And what happened was that essentially I kind of carried this kind of anti authoritarian, like fuck the world attitude into my teenage years. And what happened was that in my first week of uh, high school was September 11th, right? And so I, what I saw as a 14-year-old kid was like 
this event that had happened, I didn't really buy into the narrative that was being pushed because I didn't think that power was accountable or legitimate. Real quick, where were you at this time? I was in Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. That's um, where that's where you you were born and grew up in Los exactly, Angeles. Exactly. Exactly. Where I spent my formative years. And yeah, so I started to pursue this question of like why did this happen, right? And so then I got into like resource wars and looking at coups that had happened in like the 60s and 70s at, and at 80s. 14 you at were researching 14, coups. Yeah, yeah. Cuz I was obviously like I was the person I hated authority, so high school wasn't a place that I was going to succeed and my parents had their own version of unaccountable authority and so like I ended up grounded a lot. But I was a in my really younger years, I was always a latchkey kid because my mom was a single mom, so I would spend a lot of time at home, and where I found my outlet was the internet. So I was like always good at research, always knowing how to like find the like the dark holes or wherever they were and find the information that I needed. And so I started answering these questions. I was like, why is this? And I was just like getting so deep on on a alternative theory of power in the world. And it wasn't I came to my understanding of climate change specifically much later because I basically went to the logistical or like the logical conclusion of the system that we have and was like, oh, we're fucked. Like, there's like this system has not, doesn't have a future. And so the future we have to create is going to be, is going to be outside of this context. Like it's going to have a relationship to this context, but we're actually building a, a legitimate future that this context doesn't have. And that's where I really got into sustainability, growing food, understanding systems of regeneration, because the relationship of the systems we're building to climate change will be ones of transferring power from like pyramidal structures to more like network and community based structures. You talk about a lot of sort of informal internet research and Mm -hmm. kind of ferreting things out and learning about them. I think in this moment in 2020, the idea of quote internet research is a little bit like that's that's dubious. Yeah, that's a dead end to flat Earth. Um, (laughs) And and right, you know, and and so I'm, I'm curious if you had what kind of formal. What kind of formal training you had in terms of research, in terms of education, and that sort of thing? Yeah. It, what 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 did you have, and how did it complement and support your natural curiosity? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I know. Right now, the internet frame, and like even back then, like you would get it would talk about like global banking systems and the way that they interlocked, and then like at the end of the article, it'd be like, "But it's the Jews," and it, I'd just be like. What the Whoa. fuck? Like, where did this come from? Right, but it's the Jews. It's <laughs> yeah. like the last line. Yeah, totally. And so it's Yikes. like it was really interesting to go into this. Like, all right, it's definitely not that. It's not like the xenophobic, racist conclusion that these people are coming into. But there are networks of power that have like unaccountable influence in our world. That's like a hundred percent true, and they usually align around like oil companies or food companies or banking industries, right? And so where the like formalization of my research and education, like I actually I went to Berkeley. That was kind of my introduction to the Bay Area and a lot of like radical social movements. But yeah, it was really interesting to come into university being so deeply versed in my subject of study because basically I would just be in conversation with my professors about like their own blind spots. And like, I bet they loved that. They loved it. I mean, some did, some didn't. It was like half, half. Some would like, I remember I would fold, I'm not a note taker. I can't really do it 
psychologically, realistically. Uh, and so I often would just like fold paper cranes because I needed something to like do with my hands. So I'd just be like sitting in the front of class folding paper cranes, like talking shit to my professors. And it was like a great sight. But yeah, that I think that formalization really helped me and solidified because it really, it didn't show me like necessarily that my perspective was wrong, but it allowed me to hone it through challenge. And I, I feel like that reflection of it really strengthened my ability to articulate what I wanted to the like perspective that I want in the world. Did you feel like an intellectual kid growing up? Totally. Did you feel embodied as a kid as well? Or did you feel like you were no. a bit lost in ideas? I... Yeah, I don't think I've developed a connection to my body until I was 20 years old. For like the vast majority of my life, I lived in a very like mind-oriented dominated state because my mind is a gift and a curse. Like it has a appetite for information that is often insatiable and so that creates the dynamics where if I learn something I'm already on to the next thing and so that's not good for school because I learned things quicker than most people and so I would always just be like thinking in the weight of my brain. And I feel like I think my history of like my own forms of self medication have been often to like slow that appetite that my brain has. Mm. Yeah, it, it makes me think a little bit of the drama of the gifted child. Exactly. You know that book? No. Um, but I was in like a gifted yeah. school program. Yeah. And, and, you know, often we are driven to give our gifts to the world through some form of wounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tends to come up on this podcast a lot. <laughs> it's an area of interest of mine because I have that too. But I was just thinking about like a resistance to authority and the response of that resistance being a kind of like hyper intellectualism where it's mm-hmm. like, I can learn all about this and right. then I can change it. And perhaps that desire to learn all about it and change it was based on the wound of being subjugated through authority. Totally. Because yeah, I think my goal was to like, my driving goal is how do I create the logistics so that I can say no? Ooh, wow. That's powerful. And that's powerful too because it's logistics but also the sovereignty of information. Exactly. You know, like I think a lot of what people are experiencing right now with, with such a dearth of information in the internet and I mean, it's a mad, mad world. And I talked to Jordan Hall about this. About We've spoke a lot about mm-hmm. sovereignty and how one can have agency in the world through sovereignty of sense making and through being able right. to being able to trust and collaborate with Intelligent people who are also doers, and then be able to like create good sense of things, and and then from that place act. And I think that a lot of folks right now are kind of trying to figure out their sovereignty in the context of of so many complex global issues. Right. Yeah, and I think that what's what's really interesting is that like most people don't really fully. Most people don't fully ascertain the ways that they are kind of like conscripted into the system as it stands, but they know that that system, like it's kind of like being strapped into a train or like you have your seatbelt on on a train or a car that's like going off of a cliff and you can, you see the cliff coming, but like you can't figure out the seatbelt. I feel like that's where most people are because we haven't figured out or understand. It's really hard to hold the, the interlocking systems as they stand and how they relate to each other and how we get out of this that's not just like an advocacy play or like an election play like how do we make material changes that 
like how do we build the new car that like has better suspension so we're not going off the cliff or whatever, right? And that that ends up really confusing and overwhelming, especially if you've never thought about it. Because right now we're in this moment where like the world is telling us it's like everything needs to change, but that's a really overwhelming statement. So it's like how do we have take the knowledge that we need to change every system? That's okay. We need to change every system. Completely. Like we have a system that turns life into money and it's not sustainable and never will be. And the new system, the new boat, the new car, the new vehicle that we we need to ride into the future has a lot of parts. And how do we create a coherence about understanding what those parts are? I feel like you're saying that I'm not a good person just because I recycle. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that recycling is a myth that you believe to make yourself feel better, but if you actually looked at the logistic systems, you'd realize that it just goes to a landfill in China. And not anymore, right? I think they've rejected our recycling I think they rejected now. our waste because they to have other, enough. Yeah, exactly. yeah, now it's going to, to other Southeast Asian countries. Exactly. It's wherever it is, there's some like dump that's being mined by like kids and women, basically. Yikes. I know. Okay, so I want to tie this into... <laughs> Don't yeah. pull the thread. It never ends well. <laughs> well, we'll pull lots of threads yeah. today. We'll pull lots of threads, but I want, to, I want to kind of orient us a little bit towards the audience of this podcast totally. and the ideas of life is a festival, mm-hmm. which is essentially life is a festival is um, a philosophical position that if you live your life as if you are a participant in a co-created festival, uh-huh. um, then you can find joy amidst the 100%. amidst all the different sort of vagaries of mm-hmm. the world around you. And it doesn't mean that life is celebration. It is celebration sometimes. Right. But it means that you're in the glorious festival of life. And I personally believe that the best way of participating in that festival is to expand the width of your being in an expressive way in mm-hmm. community with others. Mm-hmm. So it's like self-expression Expression, and not just in the sense of adornment or in the sense of like showing off or whatever, right. but it's like, who am I and how do I learn, not who I am in a sort of fixed, real, defined self, mm-hmm. but who can I be and I learn this by my becoming. Mm-hmm. And, and that involves metabolizing all the different sufferings and grief, including the enormity of the world's grief, mm-hmm. and then also acting and doing so in a way that is like a festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm interested in is how do we keep the ethos that life is a festival? Mm-hmm. How do we create containers and ecosystems that we can have this joyful kind of serendipitous zeitgeist that we find at Burning Man and elsewhere? And how can we do that in a way that meaningfully contributes to the direction that humanity needs to go? Right. I know it's a tall order, but that's sort of like, that's the landscape that I'm that I'm interested in exploring. Because I mean, I think festival festival culture has built kind of a platform that we can operate on. It's like a shared language and kind of mythos of like the spontaneous creation, the the like magical world that you can drop in that you will like then return to the real world. There's like this pilgrimage aspect of it and return aspect of it and then like the ways that we share stories of that and that's all very like it's kind of like a collective vision quest that we do in a little ways um, to like imagine this new reality where everyone's nice and everyone has your best interests at heart and like we feel so invigorated by what's possible have you been to Burning Man by the way? I went once I am a Burning Man skeptic Oh, let's touch on that real quick before okay. we move on. What do you mean when you say that? I mean that it was impossible for me to remove 
Like when I hear the word leave no trace, my context is so meta that like I couldn't rationalize the like burning of all the fossil fuels that are required to like be at Burning Man and like produce Burning Man and the idling of the cars and the lines and all of that because I just thought of like Yemenis in oil fields in Saudi Arabia. Like I couldn't it was just hard for me to be like, oh, leave no trace and feel good about it because I like, oh, I mean the garbage? Like, it's like leave no trace here. But that makes no di- that makes no difference to my worldview. So it felt a little bit hollow in that way to me, actually. Yeah, there's an enormous cognitive dissonance in that. And, and it's so paradoxical because we can feel potentially so alive as a human being when we're in that actual decommodified space interacting in such a way that you that you're lost and someone hands you a bowl of soup it's like oh the world should be like that but then we separate ourselves from all of the power and privilege that that creates the totally. container and all the trips to fucking Walmart that like people make on the way you know what i mean where it's like you got people who like are totally morally against Walmart loading up shopping carts of a bunch of cheap items that they're never going to use except for burning man yeah well and you'll be happy to know that burning man is as an organization taking this very seriously. I know we spent time with Christopher Breedlove, mm-hmm. who is the director of civic action for Burning Man and runs Burners Without Borders. He's been on the show, good friend, and he's part of the team working on the sustainability roadmap for yeah, twenty thirty. Yeah, and is great. Yeah, he's great. And having Burning Man have a year off means that a lot of those a lot of those initiatives are being accelerated. Mm-hmm. It just kind of depends whether the Burning Man project ends up doing the fundraising enough that they can manage. One year and potentially two years without ticket sales, mm-hmm. but ideally they're trying to run so much solar through their Fly Ranch property, and there's a lot of initiatives right. around it. So I think everyone is like hyper aware, aware that, that like yeah, you know, and they'll they'll still burn the man totally, but but like generators, yeah. cars the, coming yeah, out. Yeah, no, I'm talking about the logistical systems that yep. make it possible. Like for my my brain that pulls every thread, I'm like I know like. Where this is going, and then pulling out through Gerlach and just seeing the like, the just amount of like landfill waste that there was, and it was just like, I'm the type of person that like, I say like goodbye, like see you later to my trash that I throw away because I know it's a problem I'm gonna eventually have to deal with. Like I don't, I don't imagine the black hole that is a landfill. Like I've been to a landfill. Like that's not a. It's the most intense place you've ever been if you've ever seen that sort of desolation, and so. It's hard to like, yeah, it's hard. It, I mean, to be honest, like, I feel like I'm less fun to be around as a result. Because, <laughs> like, or maybe I'm like less fun for myself. You, you say that laughing. You're yeah, like, I'm yeah, not I'm fun not, to be around. I'm but. not fun to be around. Cool. No, I mean, there's like, I think it just like inspires the kind of level of cynicism that I have. But, you know, that's a, that's a point to, to stop on too is, and, and really the theme in the theme of life is a festival, which is, one of the big issues with climate change is that there is a colossal, enormous grief that totally. is part that is part of the the most profound possible suicidal act is uh-huh. to kill the your entire species <laughs> <Yeah>. and potentially <laughs> make the planet inhabitable for life. That grief is right. so enormous, right. and people can't even deal with their own. Personal I don't traumas. actually think that that's the grief that people really? actually feel. I think the grief is actually the loss that we've already incurred. Because if you were able to see, like if we were able to put all of the like biosphere life that we've destroyed in order to create the amount of like wealth or money that we have in the world, like it would break you. 
there's no way you could understand that we've lost like half of our coral reefs and like 75% of our old growth forests. There's no way to actually like comprehend that much loss and the precarity that that loss creates. Like we already live in an extinction event. And so like, I don't even think that it, I think that there's a lot of focus on this idea that we're like heading towards something, but I think what's really causing the grief is all of the trauma we've caused ourselves and living systems behind us. Well, that's heavy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and makes, and makes the, makes the point that I wanted to make harder to make, which is, you know, how do we live in joy with, with full awareness and the ability to act right in our small, you know, there's 8 billion people. How many billion people? Like we feel powerless to act. Right. We need to hold. And, and I believe that you do, which is part of why it's so great to talk to you. We need to hold the complexity of the big picture. Mm-hmm. We need to feel our own personal traumas as well as that trauma. Mm-hmm. And then we also, I believe, need to still dance through the the rain. You know, right. we still need to find joy and connection because if there's one thing that I feel can really enliven a movement, mm-hmm. it's it's some degree of like humor. Celebration. Oh yeah. No, there'd be no. Yeah. I mean, there's no like humor is a survival strategy. I think like growing up black in America has really taught me that. Like, I learned jokes as a way to mitigate pain, and that like made me funny over time, right? But yeah, I think that like there's a couple things that I would say to that in like how do we orient ourselves to the future? And there's one quote that i saw on the internet today that was really amazing and it was it was it was someone talking about their friend and they're like my friend every time they like have a negative thought about their own body they ask themselves the question of who benefits from it mm. um and i love that as like uh i love that as trying to like basically drive a wedge from in between the culture we've inherited versus the culture that we wanted and like starting to have the like filter functions that understand that like we need to compost the old world and as a compost process we need to take the nutrients that are there and available and transmute them into what we need to like survive for this new reality right um and like a couple frames that really helped me is one is this idea of pleasure activism that yeah, who is the woman who Adrienne Marie Brown? Yeah. It's kind of informed a lot by Audre Lorde and this idea of like using the erotic as a generative force for like social movements and social activism. But it's this idea of like specifically coming from a like black queer lens is like as that person, like my body has been denied a lot of nourishment, sustenance, and pleasure, right? And so the acts that I will participate in to satisfy or achieve those states are in some ways inherently revolutionary acts because it requires me to undermine the systems that deny me pleasure. And it's the idea that the world that we're building can like also feel good while we're, while, while we're building it. Like inverting this idea that we're going to have to struggle against it and that there can actually be joy in it, right? Because like a lot of like black movement work is a lot of this idea of struggling, like struggling against whiteness, struggling against capitalism, and just like the daily like grind that is life for black people in this country. 
You know, it, it's really striking to me attending a protest in San Francisco versus attending a protest in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And the protest in Oakland was so much more fun. Right. And the music was so the music, the the protest chants, songs yeah, and chants yeah. and the dancing. It was totally. like and and you could see how it was so much less fatiguing mm-hmm. to be powerful and angry and present, but also moving and dancing and embodied. Yeah. And versus, you know, I went to the big like white people protest right. in the mission. Right, right. And and it was like a lot of kind of like standing around and with the signs and sort right. of like, you know, a lot of people who like wanted to chant but didn't want to chant too loud. Right. <laughs> totally. You know, yeah, like yeah. that was that was it was a very, you know, it was mm-hmm. a very interesting contrast between right. the two. And that really that really sh- talks to like the second point, which is like this idea of indigeneity and how do we as humans reclaim our indigeneity? Because in one of one person that really talks about this in really interesting ways to me is this woman called Robin Wall Kimmer. And she wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass and also I've heard of the book Gathering Moss. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. But this idea of like one of the in the cosmology that she's from, from the system of understanding and belief that she's from, there's this idea that Sky Woman, there's this like entity Sky Woman came to the earth and basically created the earth in her relationships with beings here. And so there's this idea that the like first creator came from somewhere else. And so there's this idea that indigeneity is not something that you inherit. It's the process that you weave into your relationships through care and specifically your relationships with other beings that you share place with and like the whole spectrum of beings, not like privileging just because you like butterflies. You're like, I love butterflies, but like screw the ants, right? Like just making like understanding that each has its own function in, in this, this ecosystem, this world, this biome and that, you're not there to moralize or justify that other species position, but rather just to be in relationship with it in the ways that you can. And that connects to the point that you're talking about because I think in a lot of discourse and especially from like racial or like anti-imperialist lenses for white people, like white people are in a really hard place. I empathize for white people because there is not really a there's not really an out for them in this system for being like good people rather than outside of just like feeling bad right like there's like maybe you donate and maybe you feel bad and maybe you have like the conversation with your like racist uncle right but there's and there's this idea of superiority that like is inherent to white culture that eliminates the ability for inquiry in deep ways, specifically around the construction of whiteness. Because like white people don't understand themselves as colonized people. They don't understand themselves as like the creation of Europe as being a really traumatic event for like indigenous peoples of Europe. They don't understand the like the genocidal mania that drove the church to create the like bodies of Europe that you currently have, right? And they don't understand the erasure that is whiteness because in order for whiteness to be a safe space for a large enough a group of people to maintain the racial dynamics of black and white, whiteness had to be nothing. 
whiteness is the absence of meaning in order to create a large enough basket to bring enough people together to maintain a cultural cohesion that created America. I don't think you know this, but I actually studied whiteness in Sweet. college. Yeah, I took I took a, a class on whiteness with Dr. Elmer Griffin at Occidental College, Whoa. and I learned a lot about whiteness. Like to your point, that whiteness is oppositionally constructed; right. it's defined by the negation of blackness. So yep. it's basically like put all the things you don't want to be there, and then say that you're the superior opposite. Right. Also, the transparency and invisibility of whiteness. Like Bell Hooks has a lot of great uh-huh. stuff about this. And what's interesting is like I was fully in it in college. And I was fully in like taking Rasta classes and whiteness, studying Swahili. I wanted to like go to Africa to like help out in some right. way. <laughs> you know, I went, and 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 of course when I did go to East Africa, I was with the UN Population Fund in brand new SUVs, going to meet our local contacts with gold watches and telling a group of like former prostitutes that had been given threshing machines to start a better life that George W. Bush had eliminated any sort of funding that could go to that. Like that was the experience, right? right. And so I hit a I hit fatigue uh-huh. and I hit my own personal trauma yeah. where like I went into a big depression. I realized like what am I doing in Africa? Like I don't have transferable skills. I'm just someone who like wants to be a good person because right. I've because the veil has been pulled back totally. on all of this fuckery. Right. And I went to sleep. You know, yeah. I, I not entirely, but I went into the space of like, okay, I, I need to figure out my little right. human organism. I need to find joy in my life so that I can have a sustainable engagement. Mm-hmm. And I think that what happens for a lot of people is they go through kind of like a woke period where they're they're sort of like, I'm this and I've learned this and now my identity is this and totally. I'm gonna project it. Right. And look, I'm a good person because I have a certain kind of righteousness. Right. Yeah. Right. And that that's exhausting. Totally. And it and it's and it's completely ineffective. Yeah. And so for me, where I went to with it is to try to like figure out my own depression, try to figure out my own sort of like mm-hmm. mental health, my history of trauma, and then the way that I try to give to the world, which is of course, you know, flowering in a beautiful way with this podcast mm-hmm. and other work that I do, is to try to like teach from that space. Mm-hmm. But the the piece around whiteness has kind of like I for a while I tried to talk to white folks about whiteness and they didn't like it. No, and they don't like it at they all. They don't they didn't like it and I didn't like it. Right. I remember someone being like, You're a racist white person against white people. And I was like, I feel like I actually kind of am. Right. Like and there was and there was like self-hating that was part of it too, totally. where I was like, I need to like just erase this whiteness right. from me. But where do I go to find my actual authentic being? Like my father's Australian child of of you know, down the line. Irish convicts that were sent there to right. like, you know, genocide the in- Aborigines, Aborigines yeah. and then you know, and so much ancestral trauma down my father's lineage. Right. My mom's side is like, you know, former San Francisco industrialists. Right. So like, there's that whole piece, and so you know, and and th- I'm I'm going to bring this back to our core point here because my friend Ian McKenzie, who's been on the show, who I love, wrote an incredible essay about Burning Man and about why is what does it say that a group of people call Burning Man home? Like, right. what do they need? What is missing that they have mm-hmm. to go out in the middle of the desert to create home and to mm-hmm. find home? And so, to kind of bring us into this place of like place and community indigeneity, there is a lack of homeland in whiteness too. Totally. And and there's a desire for homeland that I think really drives a lot of the community 
based stuff of festival mm-hmm. culture and is frankly driving this idea of building intentional communities. Mm-hmm. And yet, if we are not able to actually understand why we're doing it or the factors at play, totally. we're actually doing another kind of colonization. So it's a it's a thorny issue because mm-hmm. you know the education is is hard and and painful right. and yet without it you're just going to replicate the same structures totally and i think i think what's interesting i i want to go and read that piece but i think what is fundamentally being searched for is a relationship to place right and we no matter where we come from like our relationship to place has been like neutered or like removed, right? Like there is a, for me as a black American, there's like this lack of history that I have because like, it's really interesting, right? Like there's part of my family we're trying to do some like kind of genetic testing and ancestry work looking at like, you know, like slave documents and trying to find, because they didn't really count black Americans. So we don't end up on the censuses in the same way. So we have to find all these like random ways to kind of get, back to where we are and one of the ancestors that potentially we have it's a little bit dubious was like half dutch and half half black cuz she was like basically the child of a like kind of slave master and slave right and what's really interesting is that if i if that is truly my ancestor like i can trace my lineage back to like the 12th century because like they were actually dutch nobles right and there's like this like lineage and pedigree that's been kept to understand like who comes from where but it's interesting that the other side becomes like this complete black hole to me and what's what's even further more interesting is like the experience of gen- genetic testing as a black person is really interesting because like a lot of my lineage isn't defined as well because not as many black people genetic test so in the ways that they can be like you're from northern Italy like um, from this small hamlet blah 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 right like there's this like there's this like description that you can get of place for me it's like well it looks like you're like 20% Nigerian I don't know where but like somewhere and it's very interesting the like all right, cool like I have this understanding of place a little bit more but it's not like you know, there's like thousands of languages spoken in, I think, just Nigeria. So it's like this interesting spot of like, of knowing and not knowing at the same time. But yeah, just to like bring it back to what I was saying is that this disposition of place that happened for people like me and people that immigrated from Europe, whether is all related to this perspective of belonging. And what I think what we see in the Burning Man and the and the Costa Rica privilege village or the Tuluminati or whoever they are, right? Like, I think what we see is the ability to act on the desire for place and belonging. Like, I got to tell you, there's plenty of black people trying to fundraise money to create the same exact kind of context that white people create all the time. They just don't have the resources to, and so you don't usually see them. Do you know of any groups that have done that successfully or any communities for you know people of color that might be analogous to some of what festival culture are people are trying to build? Have you because I've kind of looked around for that and you know I, I haven't you know, not sure. really in terms of festival culture. I mean, not culturally the same, but I just mean in terms of like land-based intentional communities totally. with a desire for like yeah. sustainability and they're often in the south because those are places where uh, land is more affordable, but yeah, there's like there's communities buying hundreds of acres of land for black people and like black artists who are 
creating residencies for black people on land to create art. There's like obviously farming and landed communities like Soul Fire Farms or Wild Seed, which are both in New York that are trying to create space for like black people on land, BIPOC people generally. And there's also like the yeah, there's things like the Black Land and Liberation Initiative, which is all about like they have a they have a project called Reparation Summer, which is like helping black people get land so that they can like create their own stories and their own futures. Uh, so they do exist. They're really what I find very interesting is that like our information, my world is very segregated. And it's always been very segregated. Like I grew up in Los Angeles, right? I went to a magnet school, which means that kids were bused from all over Los Angeles County basically to be there. So I had like West African friends and Korean friends and like French friends and like people from like Azerbaijan and like South American friends. Like I, I've like my, my child, my early childhood was like the United Colors of Bennington. So I was like always moving between all of these spaces. And so it's interesting as an adult how segregated my life is, where I like will go to a space that has like predominantly like South Asian people, or I'll go to a space that has mostly black people, or I'll go to a space that has mostly white people. But I've never actually really been in a space that has an equal number or like an equal smattering of those people. And so as a result, I think that. We, those cultures end up kind of talking to themselves. And so like as a white person, it's going to be really hard to find some of those initiatives, even though those black people are actually looking for white people to like help them, right? But there's actually no relationship. The algorithm doesn't show them the information. There's no established bonds or connections. And so the information doesn't flow between these groups unless someone like me travels between them. Yeah, that sounds like a, a heavy load for you. If you're, do you, I mean, are you doing a lot of that kind of like emissary work, that kind of cross pollination? Do you feel in your career? In some ways, yeah, I feel like there's this desire to connect, connect meaning and find a like generative sense of belonging that. I'm trying to create that future where I can like be back in elementary school and I'm playing like, what was it called? I was like, we used to play this like Korean, like it was like kind of like Korean jacks. If you know what jacks are, like you would throw this thing and like pick them up. But we'd also be like eating the like, you know, Armenian like lunch because like our Armenian friend was there. So like I'm still trying to like get to that reality. And so I think that like, yeah, there's some of that burden of like, okay, like let's do this all together, you know? Like, you you know what, you know what I played when I was younger? What? The main game that I played, and I actually played it in school when it might have been in the U.S. It might have been when I lived in Australia. I played Civilization. Do you know that game? Yeah, right. Yeah, where basically what your job is is to dominate the world with your civilization. <laughs> That's literally the game, and I played it in school. Right, right. Like it was like, and it was my favorite thing because I was like, I've got to play a video game in school, and you could, you didn't have to play as <clears throat> you know the English or whomever, you know, right. you could and and granted that was like Civilization version 2, so right. they had, so, right. so there was like a couple token cultures right. there but it was a lot of Europe, but it's very interesting like our different <clears throat> our different lived experiences and the way that we have so much programming around how we look at the world and our place in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 wild, like I'm always trying, like how do you how do you 
extricate the parts of yourself that were given to yourself before you realized they were happening. Well, that's the whole thing about trauma. Right. You know, like developmental trauma is actually trauma that's happening in parts of your brain that you can't access with your prefrontal cortex because it hadn't fully developed. Right. That's why you do trauma work in your body and, right. and in other sort of like modalities. But yeah, it's like it's the water that we're swimming in. It's right. it's everything we know. Like for me, I was trying to be an actor in LA and I developed a wicked cocaine problem and got kicked out of school and fired from a play. And I went home and I picked up a book. It's actually on the bookshelf right here. That's right here. Cocaine um, politics? No, no. Um, <laughs> the, the Rise and Fall of the British Empire. Interesting. By Lawrence James. And I read this book and it's you know ultimately the history of my people. You know, it's the history of the you know Irish and Scots as well. But right. like and I read this and I was like, we did what? Everywhere? Yeah. To everyone? Yeah. Whew. I know. <sighs> it's it's like it's hard to hold the actual like trauma of history. Like it's hard to under so like I like I think yes, trauma work totally, but also what are the blind spots of trauma work themselves uh, of itself in relationship to the ways that we've been programmed? Like in what ways is it already patterned by stepping into that frame into a world that we're actually trying to escape? 100%. I had Bia Labate on the Psychedelic Therapy mm-hmm. podcast, which was, you know, that's the other podcast mm-hmm. I do. And there's a lot of stuff about psychedelic healing for trauma. And she's like, she was saying that, you know, this focus on trauma is itself a privileged position. You know, from where she grew up in Brazil, like no one's talking about trauma. No. You know, and granted, they have trauma and that trauma is part of it. But I think that when we have a lot of privilege, and, you know, this is totally my story. And I've actually been talking more and more about it on the podcast, where like when we have a lot of privilege and we have trauma, we can devote enormous resources to healing that trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't want to heal it in the simple, boring, tedious way. We want to sprinkle it with all the epicness of totally. like the yoga in Bali and the ayahuasca right, ceremonies right. and the, and the, you know, the trauma tra- high. Yeah. The, well, yeah. And these sort of like, I'm in this story where I'm healing my trauma totally. and, I'm, and I'm doing another workshop and, that and becomes did you, your brand that yeah, you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's like, did you hear about this particular kind of apasana that right. they're doing here? And right. we're going to go there. And I think that, and I, and I want to weave us back into community because I feel like I would talk to you about every single topic always. So to thread it back into community, uh-huh. one of the things with you know Burning Man culture, with festival culture, is that there's a lot of focus on personal transformation. Uh-huh. And it's almost like if I transform enough, if I heal enough, I'll be ready right. to work on the world. Which is the most neoliberal capitalist idea because it reduces us to this idea that we're just individuals operating as agents alone. And that our trauma is our own trauma. That, to hold that, yeah. and transmute and that like somehow there's like this implied saviorism. Like I, I totally suffer from this. I like have this like narrative in my brain that if I like didn't smoke spliffs enough or meditated enough or I'd started yoga when I was 12 that I would somehow be like more capable than I am now. And it's the way that I kind of self-invalidate my own process because there is this like ideal of like the perfectible self that I'm like implicitly chasing because from a young age I was like constantly told I had no value, right? And so I developed these practices that I thought were like that were signaled to me as like wellness practices that would make me like better, right? And so, yeah, 
navigating my relationship to that. It's like not saying that yoga and and meditation aren't like wonderful things for regulating brain and body states. Like, of course they are, but this idea of of the levels of it and that I'm like getting to some form of like exaltation or deliverance, I think is really interesting. And I find myself in that because I, I think people are kind of searching for the the panacea or the key that unlocks their door, right? Where they're just like, well, you know, I've done like 49 ayahuasca ceremonies, but that 50th one is totally going to be the one that like changes everything for me. And yeah, I wonder what, yeah, how do we, do we need to focus on trauma to heal trauma is like something that I'm interested in specifically at the community level. I think for me, I'm starting to understand that the way that we ch- that we heal trauma and community is articulated through the way that we deal with conflict. Exactly. I mean, that's trauma is in your reactions. Exactly. It's not in your memories. It's in your reactions. Exactly. And you know, a lot of trauma work that I've done, especially recently, has been within a core partnership. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of I was going to ask you the question, like, what is it that takes down intentional communities? Right. It's it's trauma that is expressed in conflict. conflict. Exactly. Um, and 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 then you know, if we have better technologies to kind of like work with that conflict, then we can be more successful. But the problem is, is that that's an enormously time consuming. Totally. And people are trying to reinvent the wheel at every community. Right. And you you go, you try to create your intentional community. It falls apart because like the main leaders partner is now having sex with someone else and, totally. and then we have to circle about it and have all these conversations and everyone gets fatigued and it's just uh-huh. it's like drama 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 right i have some i have some one is like there's this allegory of ho chi minh where apparently like someone came into a meeting 5 minutes late and they were like sorry sorry ho like i've been i'm 5 minutes late and he was like no actually count the number of people that are in this room and multiply that by five and that's how many minutes late you are because you took five minutes from every person in this room. And I was like, I was like, what if in social community we recognize that if we have 30 people in a meeting and it's an hour meeting, that that's a 30 hour meeting and like actually treated our time as sacred where we didn't just like just unload on groups because we can because there's this kind of like emotional hijacking that happens in a lot of group process where the people with the loudest emotions get the most attention. And there's this like, I was telling you this at our time at Wildwood, I was like, there's this relationship between like extroverts, paradise, introverts, hell, and that how do we like have that balance in the way that we organize systems and community? Like my house right now that I live in called the embassy doesn't actually have meetings. Like there's only a meeting if we need it. Otherwise, it's all just like communication through different platforms or as needs arise. I have so much to talk to you about. And so I think what might be a good thing for this moment is are there resources that you know of that people can go deeper with on conflict within communities? Because I think we, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on that. Totally. Um, and I want to make sure that people who are listening who are like, oh my God, I'm in a community like that. Do you know of p- things that people could read or, or talks or things to check out? I think I would, okay, so a couple things. I would, community is just an organization. I think we like to not think of it as an organization because it's sexier to think of it as like a community. But it's really just an organization. An intentional it's community. It's an intentional yeah, community. Yeah, it's conscious. Right. 
but elevated it's, consciousness. But like, it's really just a cell. It's a it's a life form with a boundary, right? And I think that there's a couple things that have been really interesting. So there's this there's this. Oh, this is going to be nice. Okay, so one is reinventing organizations by his last name is La Lu L A L O U X, and we'll have all of these books in the show Great. notes. It's going to be a lot of fun work for me finding yeah. them all. Yeah. Thanks for dropping so many books. Yeah, no, it will be great. Um, so that's great because he talks about this idea of psychological evolution and how it relates to the how it relates to the organism organizations we build. And so it talks about this like future where we have where like it went from kind of red, which is more just like power and dominance, to more like orange, which is more like traditional like military institutions. So like red is like gangs basically. Is it is this spiral dynamics you're talking about? It sounds I like Ken Wilber's. Yeah, it's influenced it sounds, by yeah, Ken Wilber. Like yeah, 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 but spiral it's applied dynamics. to an organization. Okay. Yeah. And so like moving from and then yellow is like corporatism. Green is like green meme, which is like I want to know how you feel, which is like totally it's where like the, it's a, yeah, it's like the postmodern yeah. sort of like yeah. There's a lot of interesting it's where stuff on that. intentional communities are mostly. And then teal is the ability to like supersede that, have shared understandings and norms, but like a huge basis of it is trust, right? And establishing the trust that we. That we are in relationship, people that we trust to like fulfill their mission and dream, and know that that's okay to do that, um, and not have the desire to control it. Something um, to mention about teal in the context of Ken Wilber is that teal is like the integration phase, yeah, and the recognition that they all of the developmental stages are actually part of an integrated whole, and that they all have their place. Totally, and that that actual integrated phase. Is really important, and it's what we need, right? Because I think what we're seeing in our country at this moment is people of different developmental levels, uh-huh. and I don't mean that in, in a sort of superior no, no, no. superiority. And totally. in fact, the integrated place doesn't actually hi- hierarchize. No, no, no. But it says that you know this kind of like base ego me red space has a place if it's in an integrated whole but what happens is that the orange thinks it's better than the red and then you know yeah, and on right, and on right, and on right. and and there's a special place in hell for the for the green right. yeah, <laughs> you know totally. like in terms of it being superior to everything else right. thinking it's better than everything else and then kind of fucking everything up yeah, um, which totally. i think that there are people who can resonate with with the progressive left doing totally. that which is which makes the whole co- make the whole conversation about race diversity class gender gets a lot thornier with like the righteousness of of the kind of postmodern left, totally Jesus. Okay, but the that that piece of integration, I think, is really key because it's like you're not waiting for everyone to ca- catch up developmentally. Exactly. Um, and, and and in fact, you don't really want people to catch up developmentally because there's a place for everyone. Right. And and there's like an integration piece to it. There's yeah. There's there's a there's a relevance for every structure. Right. Like there's always. If you observe nature, which is like my greatest teacher, if you observe nature, there's like plenty of ways of organizing systems that achieve the same function. Like sometimes you have the the lone animal that's like, I'm just going to hunt by myself. Sometimes you have the animal that hunts in bands. Sometimes you have the animals that basically like separate their society into classes and then say, all right, you of this class, you go do this, and the rest of you are just for sex. Is when that we just need you. is that just the human animal, or is there is no, there another? Are there other these animals? These ants, do that? termites. Oh yeah, 
Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, bees. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like that's their whole. There's a queen. Like, there's a queen, and you all like all of the women are all of the workers, and then the men are kept in cages for sex. They really figured out success. Maybe that's what the communities that we're trying we'll to build are, to, yeah, are, totally. are missing. Be like bees. Have a queen. Put your males in cages for sex. But that doesn't mean that some males are into that. I mean, let's be real. Let's be real. That's true. But I mean, think of that. That's what's really like. I mean, the women do the heavy lift of that society. Bees often die because their wings tear from overwork. Like that is the end state of that. But I mean, just to say that there are there are so many forms of organization that are possible, and different forms are good for different moments. Like if we are in crisis mode and we need to flee wherever we are, like. I can't really have a committee decision there. Like, I need to know who has the most information about what we need to do and like make a decision in that way, right? And not locking ourselves into any one way of doing things. And the other thing that I would say about this is we don't live in de- democratic society. We don't live in a society that practices the structures that we want to be a part of. And what I mean by that is that like our families aren't democratic. Our school relationships aren't democratic. Our relationships aren't really democratic generally. Maybe a little bit more in like the P2P friend area, but I think a lot in like in hetero relationships specifically, like I see women deferring to what the man wants all the time. And that's like a conditioning that's not based on some idea of like both opinions are equally valid. And so we don't actually practice the society that we want. And we don't know most of the behaviors that are required for that because most of the ways that we, the reason why conflict is such a force that breaks apart communities is because we don't really have good conflict resolution practices as a society. Our resolution for conflict in society is the state. And what that means is like either I have like the legal arrangement step in and mediate this between us and arbitrate it on like a level of like, control and violence that we deem acceptable. So I'm like, I want to seize your assets because you fucked me over or whatever that is. Or we call the police and they become the like authority which we use to mitigate our conflict. We don't really have, and because we don't often end up in peer relationships that are democratic, like conflict is often relegated to an authoritarian relationship. And so it's like you have conflict with a coworker, a boss settles it, right? Like there's always this like, dynamic of power that doesn't allow us to really explore conflict in generative ways. And so I think one thing that I've I've found in groups is like name it. Just name that we're bad at it. Name that like often there's a role in a script we fall into and offer people the invitation and opportunity to step into something different, even if they don't know the exact role they're playing. Just like, just don't play that one. It's like when I have conversation, like multiracial conversations on race, which I stopped doing for years because I couldn't figure out the pattern of like moving away from like the white lady crying in the corner and then like the black woman who like is like, fuck this, like I will not have my pain used as like a grandstand, right? And like creates more wounding and more harm. And what I realized, I was like, my friend Will Grant and I realized, we were like, oh, what if we just name it? What if we just say that that's the dynamic? That often in converse, multiracial conversations around race, privilege, and power, that the, this is the dynamic that people fall into. 
that this is the roles that people play and see if people still fall into them. And they don't. Really? Yeah, when you name it, people are like, oh, I don't have to follow that script. Maybe I, as the reactive white male, might just pause because if I know that I'm going to fall into the script of the reactive white male, I'm pretty interested in kind of just pausing on that because right. it's going to look extra silly when it happens. <laughs> exactly, and I know, and I, I've been scripted that I'm going to be reactive. So, like before the reaction even comes, I'll be like, "Oh, right. naming it's really good. I think that's really helpful." Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of the only way I've I've found to kind of get into those thorny topics. Otherwise, I mean, to be honest, I'm still learning this. I don't, I don't actually know. And and I mentioned resources. You said organizing. What what was the book that you said? Reinventing before? organizations. I think Lincioni, Patrick Lincioni, he has books on the dysfunctions of a team, which is often like a dynamic in a community. But he also wrote a book called The Advantage, which is all about how to like overcome those normative disadvantages and how to create like generative team process. So I think that yeah, I think that communities need to look actually more at the collaboration science that a lot of like management science has done mm. for corporations and businesses because mm. they have corporations for all of their like pillaging have figured out a way often to create diverse multinational groups that coordinate and collaborate yeah, well, so what you were saying earlier about composting is like let us take the wisdom and the resources and and expose to the light of day and air and light the things that do need to just disintegrate and fall apart mm-hmm. and get those get those those nourish, nourishing nutrients. Right. And so, you know, with the corporate the structures of corporatization themselves, you know, there's value there. I think that what's hard is the powerlessness that one feels to be able to have an impact on that process on an totally. individual level. And when we look at the idea of creating an intentional community, it's often this feeling of like, well, this is all fucked. So if I can get enough resources together and enough people I like, I can go somewhere else right. and I can create the life that I want right. to live. And it's, you know, and potentially with a lot of other white folks in, right. in many cases, potentially like I want to go get Good land somewhere mm-hmm. that is awesome. So there's maybe there's people that already are have relation to that land. Right. So that's you know whether that's gentrification mm-hmm. in, in in an urban setting or whether that's right. you know creating an eco village, you know in a rural setting. Right. Yeah. So to kind of come back to this idea of like people want to go to land based communities, particularly during a pandemic. Right. Like people want to go be somewhere beautiful with people that they like, where they can work on their own projects. And they can work on the betterment of that space, and potentially then you know maybe have a family within that community. And they want it to be you know environmentally sustainable. Mm-hmm. They want it to have a positive impact on the environment. And these are all noble desires, right. albeit with a bit of escapist utopianism in totally. it as well. So I wouldn't say that like you know don't go do that because of the escapism right. component to it. But to my earlier point about like you can't just do it with like the unconscious. Quixotic dream of it, right. like there are things that you need to address in yourself that are part of influencing you to move in that direction. To even move in that direction, yeah. totally. Yeah, I think that I think a couple of things that are really important for my own worldview and frame is that one, there's nowhere to run to. It doesn't matter. Like on the time scale that I operate on, every spot in the world will be affected, and I'm not searching for salvation. 
there is no like heavenly plane that I will reach to ascend from like the earthly realm in terms of like my relationships to place and like what I'm doing. Like there's no, I'm not, I'm not searching for this idea that I am creating this, this spot that will be necessarily everything I want it to be. It'll be, it's like, it'll be a oasis in the, in the hellfire that surrounds us. Right. And that pro and that the problems are global. And so what the like combination of those three things mean to me is that I can make a difference wherever I am. It's actually like the most empowering frame. Yo, this is exactly the whole point of meditation and the whole point of mindfulness and these these practices. And I've been re- I've been in it right now because I've been going through some emotional stuff. And it's like the best work I can do is in the place that hurts the most. Totally. When the pain is the hardest, that's when I'm making the most impact. And the desire to escape is actually what Taking like most neuters. Yeah, totally. exactly. It's what most neuters Bruh. the transformative power oh of gosh. of this this transfiguring fire. Can I wish to talk about San Francisco for a second with that like frame. Yeah, like why everyone's running away. Well, everyone's running away, and like what is left is the true quality of society which is an assault on black people because if you walk the streets of San Francisco right now especially in the city core the only people that you see are like black homeless people who are suffering from either addiction or like mental illness and so when you strip away the like layers of like fun and process that like a city normally has, you just have the revelation of the structure that like it's built on. It's like disposable people kind of exactly. Yeah. And so what I find really interesting is like the desire to escape, especially from a city like San Francisco, which is like if you can afford to live in San Francisco comfortably, like you have a fuck ton of privilege. It's just the way it is. It's like the most expensive place in the world. And what is interesting to me is like the running from that reality where I'm just like, oh, you can't handle that this society is a war on black people. So you think that going to this like land-based community is going to insulate you from that reality. But like what is fascinating to me is that the same structures that maintain that exploitation of people are eventually going to come for you. Whether it is in like the white militia that doesn't like your hippie pagan practices, or it's the state seizing your assets, like there is all there is like the consumptive force that has like worn people down so much in this world will always be present no matter where you go, unless you actually work to undermine it. I love that we're talking about you know the sins of the desire to escape San Francisco while I am personally plotting my my own escape and I have my own sort of like fantasy of moving to Portugal and I'm like well you know fires pandemic big orange monster in the White House like get me the fuck Fuck out out of here here. and you know and obviously like definitely there's enormous privilege I you know we'll just leave that there. That privilege thing is weird. Like it's like I don't want to give it up. Of course, because it's great. No, 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 no. It's not. It's not that it's great. Well, not like it's great, but it's like no, 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 no. What it is, what like what I've really understood is that we know society is unequal, and so why are we going to give away the position that's benefited in an unequal society? Why am I going to willfully put myself in the position? of being able to be exploited by giving up my privilege. 
Well, and that's the thing. That's why it's like, well, I can vote, I can protest, I can donate, right? But I, I can't give up my privilege because if totally. I give up my privilege, then I You're will be subject un- to the ravages of the system that you observe around you. Exactly, and 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 then in my mind, it's like, well, I won't be able to affect that system and make it better. Like right. I, I'm more, I'm more able to make it better if I, I can make this really cool app, right. and the app will let you know when like when like oppression is happening around you, right. and. I mean, we'll make a bunch of money on the app, totally, so that that's yeah. you know, we'll like, sell ads and it'll we'll sell be fine, ads. It'll be like, you know, but we'll like we'll be ethical about the targeting, you totally. know. We'll you know, we'll but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's there's right. no there's no escape from the enormous complexity of the right. psychological factors at play, mm-hmm. and at least for me, it's helpful to like have the humility of being like a single being in the world yes. and be like. Okay, I'm not trying to change the world right. because the world is constantly changing for one thing right. and I'm going to change the world is a pretty hubristic thing. Totally. But I do want to continue learning. And 100%. and that's why I like doing this podcast and having a conversation with you. I could stay mute about while you're talking about escaping from San Francisco. I'm literally going to Portugal in a month right. to see if I can like move there. Right. Because you know with the orange skies and with and totally. I haven't been into this place in a while cuz it like it, I moved here as a musician. I was like playing music. It felt funky. There were like people around that were not of like two like the stratification of San Francisco is is completely insane in terms of like there aren't like hairdressers and like break dancers and like and like people like cooking outside and like the, the like there's not there's no there's not that life here. No. There's not community here. No. People are in their sort of silos and yeah, and so I can see why a lot of people have this vision of like I want to go to this other place. Mm-hmm. I think well I want to orient us a little bit more in this moment. I think what what we've done is wonderful and I'm not trying to escape. Yeah. Um <laughs> but I want to orient us a little bit more in a solutionist kind of perspective. 100%. Yeah. Because because if we have the impulse to create these intentional communities where we can capture mm-hmm. this kind of like festival culture zeitgeist with the serendipity of Burning Man, the the kind of like elements of decommodification, if there's an impulse for that, how can we do that? Something like that in right relation. What do we need to know? Totally. How do we, how do we pursue it? And I feel like you might know this. I mean, I have ideas. Great. I have. I have ways of being and understanding that I've coalesced in this this time. And like you asked about landed community and like the escapism. I'm like, okay, like take your landed community budget, cut it in half, and pay the mortgage for like a black activist in the city you're leaving. And that is like a very easy way. Okay, now it, it, does that give you absolution? You know, like if you do that, then have you bought the the privilege of your land based community? Like, and what's the balance for that? Like, is it that I spend half of the budget on the community and half of the budget for someone else, or is it like I donate some money to Black Lives Matter and then I like move on? Because no, that I is think a bit it has of the to dy- be. I think it has to be proportional. Okay. I think if you're spending two million dollars on your land based property and you're giving like. Two thousand dollars to Black Lives Matter, for lack of a better word, go fuck yourself. Like I can't, I can't deal with you. Like if we are literally interested in restoring our relationships to each other in place, we have to actually be committed to it. Because, like, let me. This is the other way. This is the other way. To put it like 
Social change and social restoration is actually a wealth preservation strategy. Like for all the capitalists in the world, like it's actually a wealth preservation strategy. Because if you don't change society and you don't restore relationships to place in each other, then you end up with societal collapse. And that means your money is worth nothing. So mm-hmm. like it's much better to give away half now and like create the conditions that create value for other people because you're you, the other half would be worth nothing. Like the whole would be worth nothing um, in a generation, right? And so I think there is this, this built like this huge ability right now to transmute our society, right? In our society, we've created wealth by transli- transmuting life into money, right? A forest doesn't have value, but lumber does. Whales don't have value, but their blubber does. Like we have all these instances where you basically have to kill something in order to create value from it. And one of the things when when people look at, say, like the amount that the world is in debt, right? I think the amount currently is like $54 trillion or something, or even more when you start bringing in derivatives, assets, or stuff. And people are like, who are we in debt to? Where did that money come from? And I'm like, the earth. Like, if you were able to quantify the amount of soil we've lost, the amount of forests we've cut down, the amount of like fish and ocean biodiversity we've lost, like the density of beings on grasslands, like if you calculated all of that value and somehow priced it in dollars, you would end up with an exact amount that's equivalent to the debt that the world owes to the earth, right? Uh, and so but that'd be much more than the fifty-four trillion. Right? It'd be so Maybe much so. more because it'd be an incompre- like right. incomprehensible it's amount. Inco- it's literally incomprehensible. But what it offers us is a really nice pathway back, because really you just got to turn life back into our money back into life, and we have a way forward. So it's like instead of extracting value from land, like buy land eliminate rent for the regenerative farmer and allow them to do the practices that they're going to do. Like buy, buy housing, eliminate rent, give it a platform for creatives to like transform the cities in the way that we want. We often use the generative forces of people and creativity to increase the value of assets, right? Like that's just known. We just call it gentrification or restoration or wherever it is. But we don't give those creatives access to the equity that they're building. So then once the housing prices go up, they have to leave. And then Williamsburg goes from you know a Puerto Rican community that's policed with gang injunctions to create the space for artists that creates the like the holes that artists fill to then becomes like the Whole Foods and Apple Street. Like you don't have all the artists have to move away because they actually get to participate in the like value creation over time. But we we exclude people from that. We only give access to that for people who have money and what I what I think is really interesting is that there's often this conversation about risk around it where it's like I took the risk so like blah 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 and I'm just like is that true? Like did you take the individual risk? Like, what about the collective risk of the pattern that allowed you to accumulate that wealth? Like, how do we price that into the like risk calculation that people are having? And so I wonder, how do we remove this narrative of like entitlement around money and see money as like a generative force that can be turned back into life and just like do that? Talking about going to build a land-based community. I think a lot of people who want to do that 
when faced with your invitation, well, contribute half. And then that means that it's good to go forward. I think that most folks would be like, I can't build this community with half. Well, then you need to build a larger community. Don't build a bigger wall, build a bigger table. Exactly. Right? Like you got to bring more people to the table. And I think that, like, yeah, it's good to understand that sort of constraint. You know what I mean? Like, that constraint is what fuels the generative power of Black America, right? Like this idea that like we never have enough. It's never it's never enough. We never like it's very rare that a Black American actually gets to buy the house they want. You know what I mean? Like because the loan is not provided like historically and definitely now the terms aren't right. Can't buy it in the neighborhood that you want. Like trust me, I get it. Like you there's the creation of constraints and like I I understand that people don't want to feel constrained and that's like important to the like narrative of of white freedom is like this idea that nothing can constrain it and that like the world is its oyster right but like what if it's like okay yeah like what can you do if you have a million dollars and now you can only use 500 like what are you doing $500 or 500,000 500, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say if so, you had a million and can only use 500 Ooh, uh, you yeah. haven't played your hand that well. Totally, totally, totally. <laughs> or you're, or you're very generous. It's a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a tall ask, but it's not just, it's not just for people. It's for life itself. And I think that, like, you asked a question about absolution, and it's like, I don't, I don't actually care if the person feels like morally vindicated for their privilege if they give. Like half of it away, I just think it's a step in the right direction. And then we can like follow up and be like, is the world actually the way that you want it now? And if it isn't, then let's talk about that. But like, I think that I think eventually the moral superiority wears off as you recognize like the your circle and understanding of society becomes larger. You know, it's funny. I was like, I'm going to get you on the podcast and you're going to talk about how we can build a nice intentional community and all the different structures that we need to build. Totally. And then, of course, we ended up having the much deeper and richer conversation that needed to happen, <laughs> which is around the very like philosophical considerations in the context of even creating something like this. <laughs> and you know, it's it's funny. I'm 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 glad I never I didn't make a roadmap for this because I feel like anything that I ask, you are just like on and have like an answer <laughs> for. And it makes me also feel a little bit of FOMO for like the many hours of not recording podcasts that that I have in terms of like my friendship with you and yeah, talking totally. about it. Like where I'm like, well, I should record this. I should record that. Kind of like permanently want my life on auto otter lately. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're probably killing it at Clubhouse, and we'll do we'll do a Clubhouse on this on this episode. So Great. we'll yeah. So we'll release this episode, and then we'll do a Clubhouse on it. Great, and that'll give other people a time to chime in and and that sort of thing. Um, climate change. Yeah. So some of the threads that we're talking about here are like the instinct for people of festival culture to try to try to create a space to live like like a festival mm-hmm. in the context of a pandemic. And we talk about the the privilege and power involved in that and how one might kind of understand that and and might make have some accountability to it mm-hmm. and the different considerations before entering in. Talked a little bit about like the conflicts and and sort of how to right. deal with them. I want to I want to for the, our last little bit of the conversation here to talk about just this enormous you know, great white shark that's coming to devour us. Um, 
in the context of trying to create land-based community where we can have a relationship with place and we can really collaborate with everyone. Let's assume that we've gotten all of the other pieces we've talked about right in mm-hmm. the sense that like we are in right relation, we're good at managing conflict, we've we've balanced giving back to life. Mm-hmm. Now we have a piece of land and a group of people. How do, do you suggest approaching that from the perspective of a dying planet? Yeah, it's actually incredibly easy um, of a question to ask. <laughs> like, <laughs> Where are you going to say, I thought you were like, yeah, that's a very easy answer. You're like, yeah. that's actually an no, easy it's, question. It's an easy because the question that you ask frames what you, what you do. It frames the work, right? And so what I mean by that is, if I'm moving to a place, I don't imagine that place as the moon. Like I know that that place has history and like relationship embedded in it. And so it it starts with the question of like, how can I contribute here? And so it's like when I think about Topanga, right? When we were because we met at Wildwood, right? And that becomes a a kind of like enclave that attracts our global network, right? Our people that are passing through. Topanga. But I, I think about like how do we imagine one our relationship to like the natural landscape and the place that we c- control in the realm of private property. So that's like a lot of people have that right. They're like, oh, regenerative, blah, 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 right? Permaculture, like swales, whatever. And then you also have your relationship to the people around you. And I don't think we actually go into this because it's like one thing that creates legitimacy in our society is care. The ability of an institution to care is a function of its power, basically, um, to provide care. And so in a weak state, it often, so like a state often relies on both care and violence in order to create its legitimacy, right? Um, Violence against the undesirables cares against its like valued classes, right? So it's like I'm going to give you the GI Bill, I'm going to give you the subsidies, I'm going to do all these things that like support the the class of people that I care about, and like they'll be like, "Fuck yeah, America!" And then I'll use violence in order to like decimate the other classes, and that's like the history of any state. Um, and usually, you can track a stronger wheat state by where on that spectrum it lies. Like we would say that a like Swedish state is like very strong state because it almost has to use like no violence in order to like claim its legitimacy because it's all done through care, right? As opposed to like a Burma, which is like almost exclusively a violent place and like doesn't really operate on the basis of care for people. And so that model is actually something that we can adopt as we build legitimacy for our culture. Because our culture, this festival culture, will be defined on its ability to provide care. And so when I think about like, and to people not only itself, in order to get people to believe in the future we are creating, we have to articulate a space that includes them. We have to articulate a future that has a place for them and a future that they will be cared for, right? And so like, if a festival, I think some people like Permaculture Action Network are really interesting about this, right? Permaculture Action Network brings a festival to a place, but the festival does work together to build something that can like benefit the community over time. That creates governance. That creates relationships of 
care and resource allocation that are really interesting. So when I think about like us in Topanga, right, the question we should we could have asked ourselves is like, what is the like population that already lives here? Like who are the people that already live here and what are their needs? And how can we provide for them? Like, I think a lot of people move to like really rural places to have their intentional communities, whether it be like upstate New York or wherever, right? And those places are almost overwhelmingly seniors people, right? Uh, Because a lot of the young people leave these small towns that we're starting to like migrate back to because we want rural experiences for cities because that's where jobs were. So then now you just have like old people, basically, like I was working on a project earlier this year just outside of Hudson in a space called Taconic. And Taconic is 70% senior citizens of a thousand people. And I was like, what is the most effective, what, what is the most effective thing that we can do? And it's like probably grow organic food and have a meals on wheels program. And that's our relationship of care. And that creates our like stake in the community and creates the fabric of the world that we want to be in. I think what happens is like we shut the gates of these intentional communities and are like, this is the bubble we're going to be in and we're going to do this for the, the world. But we really just mean ourselves because it's just the those that will have access to it. And so I think the invitation is to like assess the place you are Realize that is it is not an uninhabited place and restore your relationships to like the beings of that place in a really holistic way. And the template for action is like, how do you care for those people? Like I already, I know the project plan for restoration of the world. You know what I mean? Like if I look at the systems of the world, it's like we need to plant trees, we need to restore soil, we need to like regrow coral, we need to do all of these things. And so these communities we're building is just a fractal level of that thing. It's like, all right, great. I have a land surplus and I recognize that like a lot of the people in my community are outside of this community can't really afford energy. So I'm actually going to start an energy co-op to start providing these people energy. And so you build this logistical infrastructure of care that actually scaffolds the new world that we want. You and I are going to have a conversation separately from this about some choices that I'm going to be making in my life. Sounds good. I really appreciate not just your mind, but the really like authentic, how do I want to call it? I like the word virtue, but it's so tied to like virtue signaling and it's a little like, it's a little passe in a sense, <laughs> but there's an integrity to which you are looking at the complexity of these problems that I think is enormously helpful. And I'm so grateful that we did this show because I've done a couple shows so far about building land-based spaces, and it's mm-hmm. a lot about like how to get the art and how to like make mm-hmm. the money, and, you know. And what you've described today is so foundational. And and it makes me think a lot about like I'm not planning to start a land-based community, right. but I am I am planning to leave San Francisco and planning to make some changes in my life and I have some resources and and so I would be really interested in continuing this conversation with you about you know what some of my plans are and cuz you know what it is you know what it is Ashoka is you're like making me inspired in an in a time when I feel like the world is dying and I need to keep myself and those I love totally. safe you know like everything's on fire the political system is totally fucked, it's fucked. <laughs> and 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 I just need to hide from the misery, uh-huh. 
do my own personal work and just, like I said, try to keep myself and those around me safe. And I think that what we're all looking for right now is the kind of inspiration to say, I can do something in the right way and I know that the tiny little corner of humanity that is you know, the space behind my eyes is in right relation and then in a way I can rest. Right. And life can actually feel more like a festival because I don't feel like there's this heavy debt dragging behind me totally. that, I, that I'm afraid to look at and even more afraid to have pointed out to me. Mm-hmm. And so that right relation piece is just absolutely and must be foundational to any of these efforts. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. And thank you for the invitation to be here. I'm super excited to like continue the conversation in the context of our relationships. And even if like for the people that are hearing this, you know, to really architect this future. Because I I see it. I know it. Like I there is this like, you know the movie Arrival? No. So Arrival is an amazing movie. It's based on a, a short story, but the concept is that aliens come to the earth to teach humanity a new language. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I did, like, I did see that. That yeah. was a great film. So good, right? And like this idea of, and one of the ways that they, the aliens in that story construct language, and this is all based on like the Sapir Whorf hypothesis that like, your understanding of a language shapes your understanding of the world, right? And so how the aliens did it was they were able to articulate a cyclical time relationship basically by one hand is, it's like imagine painting a picture and one hand is the brush at the start and one hand is the brush at the end. And the way that they constructed language is to bring the brushes together. Mm. And so when I think about this world that I'm, I see possible, like I'm just trying to bring the brushes together. Mm. And so like this scaffolding of care and the logistics of care as like the foundation of this world we want to build is like just one of those strokes. Well, I imagine that many of our listeners are feeling as inspired as I am. And I don't mean to be obsequious by any means. Like I actually am feeling like legitimately inspired at this moment. I'm not just great. I don't just, it's not just because I like you and you're hilarious (laughs) and we've had so much fun together. I actually really feel like, oh, okay, there's something to be done that's a bit deeper and something that feels more hopeful. So I imagine that, that some of our listeners, uh, many of our listeners are kind of feeling the same way after this conversation. So for those people, how can they connect more deeply with you? How can they follow your work? How can they connect with you if they have their own ideas? Mm-hmm. What's the best way for folks to be in touch with or align with you and your mission? Yeah, uh, so personally, if you want to reach out to me personally, Life Supremacist is my name on all socials, Twitter, Instagram. That seems on brand. So good. I mean, it is literally Life the brand. Supremacy. I love to yell it to confuse people. I'm sure that, <laughs> goes that might over have well. some, yeah. yeah, it goes over some strong well. reactions. Uh, strong reactions, which I love to evoke. And the other project I'm working on is called Tolo, which is all about how do we use creative inspiration and creative output to be a generative force that allows us to pool assets for radical change. And, so, and is that launched yet? The MVP is kind of launched. It's just in the beginning. So you can see it at tolo.earth. But it is still in the early phases. So if you have any insights or thoughts, I am super open to them because I'm trying to make it uh, a big thing. <laughs> awesome. Well, you already a big thing. 
Yeah, 6'3", out here. You're a big thing. <laughs> uh, big thing with flower in your hair. Hey, thanks for coming over and doing this show with me. And I had, mm, yeah. I had such a nice time getting to know you and having adventures. And I, it's fun to have such a fun like comedic timing with someone. Totally, I feel like we, yeah. we entertained and delighted a lot of others by our, <laughs> our, our misadventures. Such ridiculousness. Uh, such ridiculousness. So I'm grateful for your friendship. I'm honored to have Yours you on too. the show. Thank you. And, and I'm excited to actually go deeper on some of these topics with you. Oh, we're going to go deep. Yeah, I'm into it. Yeah. All right, man. Thank well, you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor. Ashoka. Yes. How'd the podcast go? I think the podcast went really well. I really appreciate the invitation to articulate a possibility of the future in the space of a lot of nihilism because I spent a long time in the world of like, we're all fucked and I really don't believe that anymore. Um, You can't really believe that. You can't believe that and live. No. And you can't believe that and be part of life itself because like, the structures of possibility that like led to my existence have endured so much. And it's not even just like in my human lineage, but also in like my animal lineage and the ability to like survive and thrive in spaces of devastation, whether it be the ice caps melting because it's like a trend of the earth. You know, a hundred million years ago, or a meteor strike. So there's this like, there's this fecundness that is like inherent like in being word. a part. I know it's the greatest fecund. <laughs> my my friend Genevieve Sophia Dow, who's a post Taoist master of the erotic, uses the term fecund a lot, and she uses uh, the term fecund to refer to like the deep feminine. Mm, um, yeah, yeah, I yeah, like, like yeah, it's fecund. Yeah, define fecund. Fecund is like the generative vivaciousness of life. Mm. It's like, I think of it, the fecundness for me is really articulated in like a deep jungle, like where the jungle is just like consuming itself, but also like creating new possibility at the same time. Mm. That sounds nice. I know, right? So you had a nice time? I had a great time. I really appreciate it. Any big things that we missed that we might want to flag for a future conversation? I think we have the opportunity to go deeper on some things. I think we like we went from like climate change to reparations to like festival culture. Welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, it was like But no, I think this is a really good stepping stone. I would love to come back and re-talk and be like, where is it now? Now that we've had this like 2020 chrysalis year like what is the but are we a butterfly or a moth and like what do our wings look like and where we're probably going to be pulp for a while we're gonna yeah we're gonna yeah it's gonna be a while but i mean i think it'll be interesting to see like how festivals transform because i don't know when people are actually going to feel safe to be together in the proximity that like festival requires i know younger people will but i think that will shift like 
the generationality of festivals mm. in an interesting way. So yeah, I'm super excited to talk about that going forward and especially like when some of these intentional communities succeed and when some of them fail so we can do a like post analysis and be like, oh, you hear about that weird hippie commune that like tried to poison the town? I was like, no, that's the 70s. <laughs> that, that already happened. Yeah. Already. <laughs> well, we're going to do, we'll, we'll get on Clubhouse which for the listener is an app that is still invitation only, but it's growing. And we'll thank we'll, you for the invitation. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, I got yeah, you on Clubhouse. Yeah. <laughs> they don't give me very many of those invitations, even though they I got a club. They're like they're very, they're pers- very parsimonious they with are, their invitations, keeping it keeping think, it elite I think I've got feeling. Two. Yeah. Yeah. They're 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 pretty limited. But we'll do we'll do a wrap on Clubhouse, which will be a great Q and A. And once Clubhouse becomes more accessible, it'll be woven more into this program, so people can listen to it and then they can actually get on the app and like talk to, to the, the guests. Pu- yeah. Which is so I think that's amazing. So cool. Yeah, it's yeah. basically I mean Clubhouse is basically like a social app. F- Podcast totally. So we'll do that, and then yeah, I'd love to have you back on the show. And as I mentioned when we're recording the interview itself, I feel inspired, and I'm interested. I'm in a life transition right now of figuring out where I'm going to be, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to invest in. And I would love to make that process of discovery and inquiry something that's like open source and available to people. Well, that's the podcast. Yeah, you know. So so like I think what'd be really cool is if we started chatting about this more deeply, you know, and you're suggesting some resources, some of those folks might be good podcast guests and totally. to kind of like just be really transparent about what I'm thinking because I I, do, I am ready to leave San Francisco. I've been here 10 years. I am in a place where like it's pretty wide open. I can work remotely. I got the sh- I got the show, I got my job. Uh, as long as I can take my cat Nina with me places, I I can go wherever I want and what I'm I'm you know, I'm 38 years old, so where I find home next may well be where I have children, and mm-hmm. you know. So I want to think about you know the next decade, the next twenty years, you know, where to be and how to be in right relation in that place, and how to yeah, just kind of shed as you were saying the nihilism. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to be nihilistic about this earth, no. even even as we go through these 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 sort of tremors of our. Um, the consequences of our mm-hmm. of our rapacious actions. I'd totally. like to I'd like to weather that storm in a way where I'm like in community and right. in a generative experience. Right. And destruction is a great teacher. Like, you know, the, Shiva. the dinosaurs had to die for humans to exist. For like, us to get that oil. To get that oil. Get that oil from the well, dinosaurs. I mean, it was mostly microbials that yeah. produce fossil fuels. Okay. They, yeah. Dinosaurs don't produce enough mass, but it's not it's not important. Neither here nor there. No, but what I really mean is like there are some people who say that some indigenous traditions, specifically in North America and their relationships to land, like we I think in like progressive society have a lot of reverence for like the indigenous approach to nature. But there are some people who say that that actually came from the desolation that they as societies had wreaked on megafauna and flora mm-hmm. um, during the like pre ice age, so like when the saber tooths and mammoths disappeared because of over hunting, essentially, like that the that it changed the environment so much that they were able to see the impact of their actions and then embedded those stories into their cultural narratives and passed them down through lineages so that it became all about care because their ancestors had experienced the desolation that was resulted from not care and non-intentionality. And so I, I like that as a 
even if it's not true, I just like it as a concept. It's like, okay, like we have learned this pattern of destruction and we know that it doesn't work. So we definitely have a opportunity to transmute a new form of relationship through our story, through our narrative, through our media, through our content that can actually create the foundations of a culture that who knows in like, you know, 20 generations they might look back on and be like, fuck yeah, that was dope. <laughs> God, I hope so. And we can be a part of it in our in our own small way, as long as we don't get caught up in the ego of thinking we're gonna quote change the world. I think if we all till our own little garden, you know, we'll have that impact. So And then turn that garden plot into the commons. Word. Yeah. And then turn that comment into a tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that was the whole point. That was the whole point. No, no. you didn't learn El- anything. <laughs> Eleanor o- Ostrom, who's also yeah, I got to give a shout out. All of my heroes are like all of my intellectual guiding lights are actually all women right now, which is really interesting. I like made a list of the kind of books because I was like, all right, Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, like Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, Thinking in Systems by Danella Mamos or Danella Meadows, like Biomimicry, Janine Bayus. You just you just want to give me more things that I have to put in the show totally. notes right now. And then like Eleanor Orstrom with Governing the Commons. Like I feel like my entire worldview right now is really scaffolded by, unfortunately, a lot of women who have passed, but some of them still remain with us, which is great. And maybe we can get some of them on the show oh, no. to talk to like a Burning Man white guy about <laughs> trying to do a better job. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I love you. Love it's, you too. It's a pleasure. Thank you.